Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, you guys. This is Haley, associate producer at the Webby Awards. Going into this new year, do you have any project goals or cool work you've accomplished that you would love to show off, such as creative online games, unique websites, that really nice TikTok account, or that Substack newsletter you cannot stop reading? At a time like this, it's so easy to think what you would look like in Web 3.0. So I'm sure you or a friend are great at making work on today's internet. If so, I'm here to tell you that there is still a bit more time to enter your work into the 26th Annual Webby Awards, where it'll be seen from the most talented people on the internet. The extended entry deadline is Friday, February 11th. This year, we have a ton of new ways to honor your work this year, including new categories for email newsletters, podcast, social, and even installation experience. Visit webbyawards.com to learn more. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. News needs all of us. Reform media to save democracy. Truth fights away. Injustice. Oppression. Social media. Equals revolution. Hey there, and welcome back to the Webby Podcast. Today we're talking about secret operations, clashes with police, Russian assassins, attempted poisonings, tracing drone strikes and human rights conflicts. It may sound like a chapter in a James Bond novel, but this is the life work of my next guest, Elliot Higgins, the founder and executive director of Bellingcat, an international collective of researchers, investigators, and citizen journalists. They use the internet, information available in maps, photos, videos, social media, and so much more, to investigate and break some of the biggest stories about international conflicts and crime, from smuggling operations to airstrikes and weapons trading. His voyage into open source investigations started in 2012 with real-time YouTube videos of the Syrian conflict, an obsession with the internet, and a blog called Brown Moses. From what I understand, before starting Brown Moses, you worked in finance. Were you were you one of those kids who read like a million spy novels and just never never gave it a crack at being a spy, or or sort of how did it just seems like a, such a big career shift? Well, I mean, for me, it was more actually my interest in um, I think in international events. My teenage years has been bookended by the kind of first uh, invasion of Iraq and then the mm. um, 9-11 and the 2003 invasion of Iraq. So even in the UK, you know, obviously that was you know, a big thing. And I think the kind of deception around the 2003 invasion of Iraq and, you know, 
American foreign policy as a whole and the impact it had was something that I found quite interesting. And I came that to that from a kind of more leftist kind of perspective. So I was kind of, you know, when I was younger, reading things like Noam Chomsky and John Pilger and, um, you know, those kind of authors and journalists and researchers. So that's kind of where my interest was coming from. Um, I was also someone who spent an awful lot of time on the internet and that combined with the events of the Arab Spring where you were seeing these big world-changing events happening and they were being documented by people on the ground and shared online um, just kind of fueled my interest and because I spent a lot of time on the internet I spent a lot of time arguing with people on the internet about these videos and as in a one, sense as one does when they're on the internet a lot right yeah so in a, in a sense my um, first attempts to kind of like geolocate that is to find out where these videos were filmed using satellite imagery were more about kind of responding to those kind of arguments than any kind of big ideas about you know human rights or anything that I do now but I just became more and more interested in it. And the fact that I could find out more about these conflicts than I could from the kind of mainstream media coverage of these conflicts, I found really fascinating. So in 2012, I decided to um, launch a blog, which I named after a Frank Zappa song I was listening to at the time called Frown Moses. No other reason, but it was more for my own interest and in being able to put everything into one place. But it sort of then built an audience and then... Um, because I found stuff that was actually quite significant coming from these YouTube videos from Syria. Um, I got a bit more and more attention from the kind of media, human rights organizations and other people who are interested in what was happening in the conflict in Syria. It's interesting that you bring up the Arab Spring. I think that that is a time in which a lot of people think of the internet as starting to play a different type of and a new role in just overall information that's shared and specifically you know a lot of pr and a lot of stuff around that twitter sort of fueled the arab spring and that without without people being able to tweet and say where they were in in, and say what was happening in real time that you know maybe things wouldn't have happened as quickly and you know whether or not that's true or not but that that's a, a feeling that's out there what was your experience with the Arab Spring and how does it relate to that sort of just general idea of the role that social media played in it? Well, I, I certainly think um, if you look back at 2010, when we had um, you know, the, the effects of the Arab Spring in Egypt, where you had kind of battles in kind of the center of Cairo being live streamed over the Internet, you know, for hours on end that you could see the protesters battling against the police and there'd be people online watching that and kind of I was like group watches kind of watching you know all commenting and saying oh they've done this they've done that um that kind of was kind of my first I think exposure to it then with Libya as there started to be videos and photographs coming out of there being shared on social media I think that fueled the interest in what was actually happening in the country and because it was happening you know in areas that journalists couldn't always reach there was information coming out that otherwise would have been impossible to get then with um, the conflict in Syria that kind of collection of information on the ground and the sharing of it on social media became a lot more organized by the groups on the ground partly out of necessity because rather than there being a kind of open internet in the areas where there are opposition groups the internet was often shut down and the only way to get information out was either smuggling usb sticks out or using satellite phones or some other form of communication and that kind of centralized um the sharing of video footage to media centers that kind of emerged on the ground and then through my own work, I was able to identify all those um, kind of YouTube channels made by used by media centers and armed groups and other groups of people in Syria and almost check them every single day for the latest videos coming from the conflict. And some days that would be like several hundred videos all related to the conflict from across the entire country. And by following that every single day, 
I was able to build up my own understanding of the conflict and learn more about how the conflict was kind of unfolding. How big a role did the community that you were working with and that was reading your stuff play in sort of motivating you and inspiring you to continue? Well, quite early on, um, I was kind of talking to journalists who had reached out about videos I'd seen or, or, and shared online. I was on Twitter sharing videos. There was a New York Times journalist who was very interested, for example, in videos of um, shoulder launch surface to air missiles, ammo dumps in Libya, because they're their spread of those and the kind of you know stealing and selling of those is quite a big issue and he was working on that a lot and, and that kind of made me realize that there was kind of more value to these videos rather than just kind of looking at them and saying hey isn't that interesting or cool um and then over the years with kind of syria i mean the first year or so almost was me teaching myself how to identify a lot of these arms and munitions um being used in the conflict you know from bombs being dropped by aircraft you know cluster munitions bow bombs which is an improvised kind of bomb that became very popular um for the op uh, government forces the weapons used by the opposition to see how well armed they actually were and then in 2013 um at the start of the year i identified new weapons that were appearing in the country and um, that I'd never seen in any of the other videos and using those YouTube videos showing these weapons I was able to establish they were being received by groups who are known to be uh, supported by this group called the Friends of Syria as they call themselves which are basically uh, Gulf states and western states who are supporting opposition groups um, I took that to the journalists who had previously contacted me about man pads at the, uh, the surface launched air, surface to air missile um, from the New York Times and he um, took that and used that to talk to American officials who basically put their hands up and said, oh, yes, that's the smuggling operation that the uh, Saudis are doing uh, through Jordan. And because of those YouTube videos, this massive scale smuggling operation that came from, you know, the former Yugoslavia all the way to Saudi Arabia, then into Jordan, then into Syria, was exposed just because they posted the videos on YouTube. Um, but no one else was looking at that. No one else was going through that systematically. And that ended up being kind of my first really big story on Syria. And that was ended up on the uh, New York Times front page as well. So that for me was as a blogger who had started doing this for fun was quite significant. I bet. And it's, I mean, it's, I just want to take a pause here and just note that it's not like you were a weapons expert before all of this. You didn't you didn't have tra military training. You you didn't go to school to to learn forensics. Uh, you really taught yourself all this stuff in this short amount of time, and you know revealed something that while maybe it was in plain sight on the internet, took at the end of the day a fairly a, a fairly good amount of expertise to to notice was important and to to bring to the surface. Yeah, and that was a combination of, um, you know, looking at publicly available resources, you know, for example, there are loads of like real kind of weapon nerds on the internet who obsessively document every single nut and bolt of um, weaponry, you can find them doing that. And they have images that you can then compare to the fragment of a bomb that you've seen in Syria and check there's like, you know, Nova matches and then say, okay, it must be belonging to this bomb or, you know, cluster munitions, it's not like a million different times of cluster munitions so it's right. not that hard to learn what they all are so just over the kind of first year i taught myself you know almost munition by, by munition what they were and when i uh, kind of got stuck i was able to talk to a network of um, arms and munition experts who had kind of reached out to me previously on different things and then um, that came in to be very useful so today um now the focus of your work is at something called bellingcat and uh, you've really evolved what you were doing as an individual um, into a larger organization, teaching lots of other people out there all your techniques, training people who want to be 
I don't if citizen journalist is the word, I'm, I'm not sure if that's the right word, but who want to also do this um, and really just sort of like growing the capability of, of what you've done into a much bigger footprint. Um, can you tell me about how Bellingcat started? Yeah, so in um, late 2013, there was a real growing interest in open source investigation. And um, a lot of people would come to me and say, can I publish an article on your blog that's based off an investigation I've done? And I'd be like, sure. And then people would say, oh, Brown Moses has written this. And I thought that was a little bit unfair. At the same time as well, because there was this interest, I wanted to a place where there were resources for people to learn how to do it themselves. So um, I launched this new website in July 2014. I kind of crowdfunded it through Kickstarter um, and it became, uh, you know, very quickly, very well known for the work it was doing, partly because of um, the timing of its launch, because it was launched just a few days before uh, Malaysian Airlines uh, Flight 17 was shot down over eastern Ukraine. And because like the social media landscape there's very different compared to Syria because everyone had internet access and could post whatever they wanted online. And that meant you had this kind of almost giant haystack which had a lot more needles in it to discover. Mm. So we just this whole online community kind of emerged almost in instantaneously digging through this material. And I started just kind of observing that. And then there would be videos and photographs coming out and we'd kind of work together to figure out where they were taken. And very rapidly, we were able to identify um, the route of a um, surface-to-air missile launcher um, through separatist-held territory. We were able to identify a launch site based off social media posts of people saying, I've seen a missile launch from this field or the trail of smoke in a photograph and that the missile launcher was heading to that direction of that field just before MH17 was shot down. Eventually, we were even able to, uh, by using videos posted online by Russian citizens in the west of Russia, track a convoy that had traveled a few weeks earlier to the border of eastern Ukraine and warn the missile launchers in that convoy had the same markings and damage and other details that matched perfectly to the one in Ukraine. So we were able to say this was a Russian missile launcher that was responsible for shooting down MH17. And we did that in quite short order as well. I mean, by 2015, we had established, you know, where this missile launcher had come from. By the end of 2016, we had identified like every military, um, every soldier who was part of this military unit that provided the missile launcher. Um, and that was based off their own social media posts because they all followed the same um, social media page for their military brigade. And then they all followed each other. So from that, we could kind of map out the entire structure of their unit and who was in this convoy and who could possibly be a witness. And I think there the really big moment was in um, 2016 when the official criminal investigation gave their first official press conference on what had happened. And up until that point, they'd been pretty quiet. And when they gave that press conference, it was everything we'd been saying for the previous two years. And I think in a lot of people's mind, that really kind of cemented that this open source investigation could be very valuable, particularly when the joint investigation team themselves had used open source material in a very similar way that we had to make their case to the public. Another part of this, which is, I think, pretty indicative of all the work you do, and it, it sounds like a really important part, is that everyone else can go and look at the, the evidence, right? It's It's all there. It's not like you've done all this work and you have blind quotes and anonymous sources saying who it is. In fact, you have all the evidence on the site. Anybody can go look at it. Anybody can see the pictures. Everybody can see the geolocation. I mean, it's really there for anybody to piece together, including the official investigators. 
Yeah, and that really came, I think, from my days of blogging where I just thought no one has any reason to take what I'm saying seriously because I'm just some guy with a blog. So mm-hmm. I was as transparent as possible with my sources. And because those sources were publicly available videos and photographs and other material online, I could you know, direct people to every single reference I was using. And over time, that helped build a kind of reputation for transparency. And that's something I took into my work with Bellingcat. And even now, that's kind of core to how we work. Because for me, it's as much as kind of getting out what we've got as it is then people picking that up and doing more with it. So if we're transparent about the sources, the methodologies and everything else about the process, then people can do that. And then I find out more about things that I'm interested in. Um, So that's recently as well in the last few years proven very useful when we've been doing more work around justice and accountability because now because of the kind of growing reputation of Bellingcat and the wider use of open source investigation there's interest from the likes of the international criminal court for example of how open source material can be used in their own work so we focus a lot more now on how open source evidence can first of all be archived because social media platforms tend to take down this kind of content now mm. and also investigated in a way that if if you're in front of a judge, you can kind of explain it and it'll be accepted in a court. So, you know, your work has had, has had a ton of impact. Some of that impact is because you've inspired so many other people to see what can be done. Um, and you've, you, you know, that passion for what they're doing is is, is so important. And it, it, you know, just provides a lot of additional people working on all these things. Uh, but some of it is that you all together tackle, you know, very mysterious and important you know, questions. And so one I wanted to talk to you about, um, some of your high profile cases is the work you all did around the Alex Navalny investigation. And so um, for people who don't know, he was uh, a, a Russian counter operative, would that be fair to say, or a Russian dissident, maybe? Is that the right? Yeah, he was kind of an opposition, opposition activist, activist and political figure. And he was poisoned. Um, and, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't die from the poisoning, but nearly. And, uh, you all, I mean, I think there was a lot of suspicion about how that happened and so forth, but you, you all were able essentially through, you know, largely open source information and information that you sort of were able to procure, um, were able to identify, uh, you know, the culprits. Yeah. And and that really was actually an extension of an investigation we had begun in 2018 into the poisoning of um, the former Russian spy, Sergei Skripal, who had defected to the UK and was living in Salisbury. Um, And he was poisoned by a chemical agent called Novichok. There, um, the identity of the two assassins was made public, but we actually discovered that they were traveling under fake identity documents. The way we did that is use um, Russian basically black markets for data where... Mm. In Russia, because it's an extremely corrupt country from top to bottom, there's lots of people who sell government data online for very low prices. And as an experiment, our lead researcher, Christo Grozev, um, he decided just to buy the passport records for these two suspects. And from the there, fake, it became, the fake names. Yeah, the fake names. And okay. from there, it became very apparent that these people were traveling under um, fake identities. There was like, for example, the phone number of the Russian Ministry of Defense stamped on the document. We basically call this if you look at this document. So it's very suspicious. Um, And we realized that um, 
there was, had been a case a couple of years before that in Montenegro where there'd been an attempted coup and one of the coup plotters had been arrested and he had two passports, a real one and a fake one. But the fake passport and the real passport had the same first name, date of birth and place of birth. So we used that as a pattern to identify the real identities of these two suspects by getting access, for example, to Russian residency databases. Like we could see these two guys appeared out of nowhere in 2013 when in the previous year's database they hadn't been on there. So they were created identity. And eventually we were able to get the real passports for them and show they were GRU officers. And that was, you just used the idea of like their name was John and their birthday was April 10th. Then you went and looked for other people who's John something on April 10th and there was some limited amount of people and you were able to figure out who it was essentially. Yeah, and then we could order the passport records for them and it had their photographs on it. And we could say, look, here's the same people with different names. Right. Um, and they, they all had like their house registered to like the GRU dormitory and stuff like that. So it became quite obvious. Um, and so we, that led to a series more of investigations kind of building from that. But one of those investigations led us to a uh, Russian scientist who'd been calling up some of these Russian operatives who'd been involved with another poisoning that was linked to the Scriffle poisoning. And when Navalny was poisoning, we got his phone records to see who'd been calling. And some of the people who'd been calling were FSB officers just before Navalny was poisoned. So we got their phone records. And among that were, were not just who they'd been calling, but which cell phone towers they'd been connecting to. And some of those had connected to the hotel close to where Navalny was staying on the night before he was poisoned. So after a lot of digging, going through records and figuring out who had real identities and who had fake identities, um, we are able to piece together like the entire FSB assassination team behind the Navalny poisoning, their travel records, the fact they'd been following Navalny for dozens of trips beforehand. And that eventually led to us, um, my colleague Christo Grozev and Navalny um, calling up these poisoners one by one. And Navalny finally managed to convince one of them that he was actually a um, basically a senior bureaucrat working for one of his bosses and he needed an urgent report on what happened with the poisoning and why it failed. And this guy gave a 45-minute interview on video uh, over the phone, but we filmed all of this, um, with Navalny himself asking him details of his own poisoning to this FSB guy who was in charge of the cleanup. Um, and then, of course, we were able to publish this story and it was, you know, a, a big story in Russia and internationally as well. But even that story then led on to us finding that the FSB team had been involved with other poisonings, including uh, local Russian activists, um, a guy called Vladimir Karamurza, who was a friend of Boris Nemstov, who was murdered outside the Kremlin several years ago and was involved with the Magnitsky actor sanctions in various countries. He'd been poisoned twice and fell into a coma. He was followed by the same FSB team. Once you identify who those people are, then you just started looking for all the other phone records that they had, all their other data, and just triangulating those things together, essentially. Yeah, and in fact, in um, some of the cases, what we did is we got the travel records of all the um, team members and published them on um, social media and said, does anyone know anything special about these dates that you know people fell ill? And in a couple of the investigations, it was because um, of the response on social media to those uh, pieces of information. Um, but I mean, there's still, you know, I think we've still got the back backlog of several poisonings linked to that same team. We're still investigating. And it really does also change sort of the context and the story of those assassinations from this one time, you know, this idea that they came up with this unique one time way of, of assassinating somebody who was relatively high level to actually it's a pattern 
that's not a one-time thing, but it's a systemic way uh, that the Russian government deals with dissidents and actually is applied to people of, of various levels of opposition. And it's not just very, very high-profile people, but in some cases it's, you know, uh, relatively low-profile people. Yeah, and it, when you really look at it in the context of some of the other stuff we discovered, I mean, one thing um, our research into the scripple poisoning has led to is we, again, published their travel records, and the um, uh, Czech um, Republic discovered that they had actually visited their country at the same time there was an explosion in an arms depot and discovered that two people had turned up at the arms depot, supposedly from two different countries, but it was these guys using fake passports and identity documents. And that explosion was then linked to a poisoning that we'd previously investigated of a Bulgarian arms dealer called Emilian Gebrev by the same unit. So, and, and the thing is, we have all these travel records, but we can see that there's only so many... Um, cases we've identified so far, but many more travels of these people traveling together in groups. Some what else of them were they were doing? visiting, for example, the World Anti-Doping Agency and spent a lot of time over there. And we already know oh, Russia right. has an interest in that. Oh, so um, there's, I mean, there's going to be more stuff that we're publishing on this. And I think there'll be plenty for us to research in the um, coming years and months, basically. I mean, there's so much of this material. And because all this data has, you know, we've got databases of all kinds of different things, travel records, house registrations, we can just find more and more stuff. And it's, you know, really quite, uh, you know, it's, it's been a, like a real kind of treasure trove of information, but also quite worrying. One thing people might not know, and you just alluded to there, is um, in Russia, it's relatively easy to buy metadata about almost anybody so like even as a regular person if i wanted to you know buy my colleagues phone records metadata it's not that hard to do right well yeah i mean it's it's very easy in fact i mean you and, just go to the right internet forums and there's someone selling it it's a lot harder now because of our reporting because sure. the russian security services have really cracked down on anyone and um it's 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 really the main thing it's done is actually make the information more expensive than make it inaccessible mm. um but you know this information before was being used for all kinds of nefarious activity you know it was used for fraud and criminal activity it was used for people to check up on their partners to see if they've been cheating or phoning someone else i was interested in looking at all these russian um fsb officers and gru officers that you'd have the three most phone calls would be the the wife the mother and the girlfriend uh, in like every single case. So this, I mean, there would certainly be reasons for people to buy those records beyond just seeing if they're spies. And is it, was that, is it culturally like pretty commonplace or is it, is it just sort of like, I don't want to, I don't know how to characterize people who would do that, but I guess, is it like a main, was it a mainstream activity that like people would do that or is it still, was it still pretty? No, I mean, it wasn't even weird. I, I, I was looking into this just to see the history of it. And I found an article from 10 years ago in the financial times talking about people at a Russian market selling kind of DVDs with this stuff burnt onto it out the back of their car. So it's just wow, the, right. it's been an ongoing thing for a long time. It's just moved online now. Yeah. And do you see, is that commonplace? And, you know, I, I think that that's not very, I mean, look, I, I know in the U S and in the UK, that information sometimes is purchasable. Obviously, there's huge data leaks and there's certainly like the dark web and places where people buy these things. It it, it doesn't seem that easy to do. Um, is it is it commonplace in other countries outside of Russia? Not that we've really been able to identify. I mean, the scale of it in Russia is just absolutely massive. I mean, it's, it, the kind of data we were getting, you know, it was, was just anything you can imagine. And the fact some of it was like people's personal phone records going back over two years you know, this isn't just who they've called, but every single time their phone's connected to a mast to transfer data or anything. And those mast 
information comes with the coordinates. So you can map out someone's movements for two years based on their cell phone data. And it's also quite sobering when you think about your own phone data and about what's being collected by the phone companies and what can be used you know, by you know, the security services and the police. Well, it's also what's also kind of amazing, and I would love to understand how you look at this, is are other intelligence agencies not using this information? Like, or, or is it just that we never know that they are? You know, so in this case of, of Navalny, like, were the UK and the US government using similar tactics or do they use similar tactics? Maybe you don't know, you know, but it's just kind of fascinating that that you've all sort of like pioneered this entirely new way of doing these investigations. I, I suspect not. I mean, certainly the reaction that we heard about was one of surprise that we had managed to get this. In a, another case, we looked into a uh, assassination in Berlin, and it's now actually in trial, and the results of that will be coming out, we think, quite soon. But we ended up um, with one of our colleagues being the star witness in that trial because of that same research and getting that data. And the impression we got there is the German security services did not do that kind of investigation as part of this and um it, that's why our research became very crucial to you know the trial and you know showing that it wasn't just a murder but it was a state-sanctioned assassination so there's certainly a indication that this isn't something that's you know done too commonly but we've no kind of real insight into who's you know doing what hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I remember they do it all the time. We just don't know. You you mentioned um, that you know some of this the access to some of this has changed, especially in Russia, as the government's cracked down on the selling of this stuff. I would imagine overall, you know, the use there's a lot of ephemeral data on the internet that data that comes and then kind of goes away. Um, it sounds like there's people who are trying to scrub data and get rid of it, knowing that people might investigate it. How do you, how do you just all, all deal with that overall concept of? And you mentioned you touched on it for a second there earlier of getting the information or finding it, but then also keeping it and archiving it and um, and having it so that it doesn't get scrubbed before you have a chance to go through it all. Yeah, I, I, when it comes to um, conflict and looking into conflict events, um, that's become a kind of much more important issue because 
with the conflict in Syria, we saw both how these things can be used to d- document war crimes, but also in the kind of um, ISIS period, kind of 2014 onwards, how social media companies started seeing this kind of violent content as a threat, even if it wasn't specifically related to ISIS. So there started being more crackdowns on the data, you know, whole YouTube channels of Syrian opposition groups being removed, losing, in some cases, you know, I think in one August, several years ago, about half a million videos were scrubbed within a couple of days of each other. And we had to work to get those videos restored because they were all evidence. And that led to organizations forming like the Syrian Archive, for example, now known as Monomic Labs, who archive material. And they've got 3.5 million different kind of pieces of data from Syria, um, just to give you a sight idea of what that is. And that's videos and photographs. And it's very important to archive that stuff as part of the investigation process if you're an organization that is working on conflicts. But it's such a new idea that no one's really put the systems or the methodologies or anything into place. They've not really created them. So part of what we're doing at Balancat is looking at how we do that, how we can actually um, you know, work with lawyers to actually figure out what a judge will actually want. Because there's a, it's easy to make a lot of assumptions about things like chain of custody, but actually doing it in action is you know quite a different thing. So that's that's been a really big focus of our work when it comes to conflict. Um, and then you have kind of other issues as well. I mean, if you look at what's happening in Russia at the moment, especially since the, um, May this year, it's been a real crackdown on independent media, independent researchers. I mean, we, even we have been declared a foreign agent by Russia in an attempt to silence our voice. And, you know, we're, we're, we're going to have our website kind of banned in Russia because of that, because they the law is basically you have to put a disclaimer on every single tweet, every single post saying that you're a, ded- you're a foreign agent and blah, 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 blah. And we're not doing that because Russia tells us to do that. So they're going to block our website um, from Russia. Why so much focus on Russia? Is it, is it just because they, they do so many quote unquote bad things? I mean, it's partly that. It, it's more, I think, how open source investigation develops as a field. And it's partly through the Arab Spring how Syria became the conflict that everyone was focused on. Mm-hmm. So if you were interested in open source investigation, Syria was where you'd kind of learn about it and start doing it. And it was kind of through my work that I think a lot of people learned about it. And that was focused on Syria. Right. Um, then MH17 was shot down when Bellingcat was launched. And that became the big focus of the, kind of the open source community. Um, and that was Bellingcat's focus. And obviously Russia was involved with that. Then Russia started bombing Syria in 2015. So the two kind of open source communities kind of came together over that. So it's really always been partly led by the fact that this is just what has been the most interesting stories at the time. And um, with the work we've done on the scripples and stuff like that, that is really enabled by the fact that Russia's just a corrupt state, the way we can get this data and it's unique in that sense. And the fact these stories are so significant. I mean, We've seen, thanks to our work on the poisoning, Russian spies being in operating in Europe, being pulled back to Russia, like literally within days of our articles coming out about other Russian spies. So that has a direct impact. Um, and, you know, these are people involved with, you know, assassinations and sabotage and, you know, even coups. And our work has had that kind of impact. So for us, it's, you know, important to keep doing that kind of work. Absolutely. You know, one thing as you're describing all this, I'm I'm just sort of thinking about and want to ask you about is it's, it's a classic thing for, for someone like Putin to say you're on the American side or something like that. Right. And I'm sure that you all believe yourselves to be independent and not on the side of a country. How do you navigate, you know, being like on the good side? And I don't know if you even think about it as the good side, 
But, you know, and, and sort of as a example is like, how would you say you're differentiated from something like WikiLeaks, right? Which I'm sure some people at that organization think that they're doing good work. Lots of countries don't think they're doing good work. But it's, it's really, it's a tricky thing to be involved with because there are so many different entities and agents and countries that are trying to cast you potentially as bad or, you know, not, you know, sort of illicit or what have you. Yeah, so with Bellingcamp, um, even in my early days of blogging, there were these kind of counterfactual communities that formed around certain topics. So in Syria, you had people who thought Assad was a great guy and he would never do chemical attacks. Uh, with MH17, you had people who were convinced that Ukraine was responsible for shooting down MH17. And anyone who kind of ran counter to that viewpoint must be part of the conspiracy. So we got all kinds of accusations of being, you know, CIA, MI5, MI6, you know, every free letter agency in the right. world, basically. Um, but what started um, happening, you know, for us as well is we started having state actors saying that. So, you know, the Russian Federation promoting those kind of ideas. So we try to be as transparent as possible with our organization. So, for example, we purposely set up a foundation in the Netherlands where we have to be audited every year. We have to publish who funds us and make that public. We have to be very transparent about where all our money comes from. Um, we also investigate a really wide range of topics. I mean, I think our Russia stuff is probably best known because it is they are such big stories. Right. But we do all kinds of topics. I mean, we've just done an investigation into the murder of a uh, Colombian protester called Lucas Villa in recent um, anti-government protests that shows that um, the police did a really poor job investigating it. And he was a victim of a targeted assassination. We've investigated, for example, um, U.S. airstrikes in Syria that have killed civilians. And, you know, there's one incident where they blew up a mosque full of civilians and claimed it was an Al-Qaeda meeting location. And we literally reconstructed the building using photographs and videos to show that in fact it was a working mosque when they bombed it not an al-qaeda meeting location as it was described um so we try and do a kind of a broad range of different kinds of topics um but you're always going to have people that just focus on one kind of investigation i mean i've, I've lots of people on twitter are very mad at me for the stuff that we've published on russia but that's just the nature of social media unfortunately um you bring up conspiracy theories uh which I wanted one one thing a conspiracy theory you're all looking into, which is quite fascinating, and you're working on now. I believe is something you're calling "Where in the World Is Q," which um, I believe to some extent you're trying to unmask like the originator or the group behind QAnon, essentially. Yeah, I, I think if you're uh, someone who follows Q closely and you know the community around that, you have a pretty clear idea of who it could be. But we wanted to look at some kind of more the empirical evidence around that. So um, one thing is we did is we uh, basically scraped about a thousand images from Q posts, posts that had been used, used um, by Q and um, were posted on the accounts that Q used and looked at the metadata in those images and scraped that information. And it showed that it basically the metadata, um, you know, focused on two areas of the world. Um, so kind of the West Coast U.S., and um, basically East Asia. Um, and if you're familiar with the person who's uh, suspected to be Q, then you'll know that rather fits rather neatly with his patterns of behavior. Um, so that kind of um, research is quite useful. That kind of more actually looking at more empirical evidence from digital information is, is quite different from, let's say, hunting a Russian spy. But it's still possible to you know, extract really useful information, even from you know, 4chan and 8chan posts. Um, another project you're working on, which I thought was really interesting, is uh, you're working with a partner and that owns like a satellite, and essentially you can you can point the satellite at anything you want in the world, 
and you you went out on Twitter and asked the community what to point it at. Um, yeah, um, Planet Labs is a company that has launched a, a whole array of micro satellites that allow them to basically take an image of the world every single day. It's not as high resolution as Google satellite imagery, but they also now have satellites that you can task um, for a fee, of course. But that means that you can point a satellite to anywhere you want in the world and they'll take an image of it. So for our first batch, we basically asked the public, um, you know, where would you like to have a look at? And we had four options and we took a lot, lot at, um, in terms of the US military base, a kind of shipyard and some other interesting locations. One thing we're thinking about doing with the next batch of taskings we've got is looking at the um, Russian military bait buildup in Ukraine and pointing satellites to known Russian military bases um, in the west of uh, Russia. So it, it's kind of looking at um, you know places that, that we know there's interesting stuff happening. It, but it also means that when we're doing our investigations now, we need a bit of fresh satellite imagery. We can point something to somewhere and get an image quite soon. And that's quite useful when you're dealing with conflict events where you've got a chance of capturing some useful information quite soon after the event has taken place. Um, and that availability of satellite imagery has really kind of revolutionized what you can do with this, because I think without that satellite imagery, you wouldn't be able to verify a lot of the videos and photographs coming from places like Syria and Libya, because you have that ability to see what a location looks like remotely and then compare the kind of key kind of uh, points of interest to what's visible in videos and photographs and say, this is the location this uh, event happened. And that is a key part of open source investigation. And that wouldn't have been possible. None of this work was really possible, you know, 15 years ago. It was thanks to the rise of the you know, smartphone, thanks to the launch of the iPhone, that led to the development of social media apps that meant everyone was sharing a vast amount of information that allowed people to share stuff in war zones. And alongside that, we had the development of Google Earth that made satellite imagery available to people. Google Street View, also extremely useful for that kind of reference imagery. And because of those kind of two uh, kind of strands kind of we weave together with open source investigation, it's allowed us a new way to investigate these events and you know discover things that are happening in the world. You mentioned a few um, different types of data there, and we talked about some of them. Satellite imagery being important, Google Street View and Street View generally being important. It sounds like this metadata phone records is really important. Um, very interesting about how you sort of create a network around people who follow people on Twitter and in social media. Is there other types of open source data that we haven't covered that are really play typically play an important role in your investigations? I mean, there's all kinds of different sources and, you know, tools as well. And often the kind of re approach we have is rather than thinking in terms of one tool that does everything, we're looking at a toolbox and then looking at the problem and saying, okay, what do I need to, you know, solve that problem? It's like if you're, a, you know, a carpenter and you build a set of shelves, you know, the process of building a set of shelves. Um, and, you know, if you could come up to a problem when you're doing that, you can say, okay, what is another tool that I can use to get around this problem? So there's a whole range of satellite imagery. There's things, for example, now um, public fire satellites, which um, look for fires that are happening anywhere in the world and, and puts them on a map. And they can be useful for, you know, natural wildfires, which is what they're usually used for, but also looking at, you know, destruction of farmlands and, you know, burning of villages and stuff like that. And that's what they've been used for. Um, I mean, there's a there's uh, aircraft tracking websites that are very useful to seeing where you know aircraft have been. 
um, with historical data, marine tracking as well. That's been very useful um, when there's been incidents um, with Iran attacking, you know, various tankers and transport vessels. Um, also looking at the backup when the Evergreen blocks the uh, uh, Suez Canal as well. You can see that all the ships kind of just stuck on one side and the other just stacking up. Um, so it, it's it, there's just so many different resources, and it's really about you know just fig- learning kind of what all these potential resources are, learning the different tools, and then realizing how you can combine them to help you know investigate something i mean i have to ask you uh, i think anybody who's you know pursuing investigations against the, the russian government must must be somewhat you know concerned about their own safety um i mean do you think are you are you worried there are you, do you think about that are you are you sort of like more do you monitor your own you know environment more than you used to like how do you how do you sort of deal with that yeah, you, you have to be a lot more careful. I mean, there's different kinds of threats. I mean, there's the kind of cyber threats that, you know, we've been targeted frequently by Russian-backed state actors targeting our email accounts right. and trying to hack us in different ways. We have um, the security threats, and that doesn't just come from the Russian state and other state actors, but also the people on the internet who, you know, think you are definitely the CIA and possibly a lizard person, and they need to pay you a visit. Um, so you have to be worried about that. And, and you know, it's like when I go to a hotel now, I won't eat any food in the room that's been left out you know like if they put out like a little muffin or something i'll be like that's going in the bin or you know anything from the mini bar i won't eat food that's on room service so i have to go to the local supermarket and buy a really sad looking sandwich and eat that instead so there's just those little kind of ways you have to kind of be very careful about your behavior and your own safety um and it's that you know is also something we talk to our staff about a lot because it's not just about the impact of stuff that happens but also how people are affected psychologically by the threat of things that could happen as well and sometimes something you know i'm I'm very used to the russian media kind of going after me and saying terrible things about me but i i know that people who haven't encountered that in our our kind of line of work and who work for Cat may find that very disturbing when that first happens so it's also building a culture at Cat where you can kind of talk about those kind of things and you know work together to you know help mitigate some of the danger and damage that that can cause elliot higgins thank you so much for joining us on the webby podcast I, you know the work is incredible the website's bellingcat um it really is a testament of of all the good all the ways the internet can be used for the powers of, of good and and like really just the incredible uh, resourcefulness of you and your community and you know so thank you so much and thank you so much for joining us that's great thank you very much i hope you enjoyed that segment with elliot as much as i did to close out we wanted to further today's topic through a new segment we're calling what the world thinks with yougov where we'll surface consumer insights powered by yougov an international research data and analytics group For each segment, I'll be joined by Hamish Brocklebank, Chief of YouGov Safe. Let's get into it. We had a discussion with Elliot Higgins, who's uh, from Bellingcat, and we talked a lot about how the internet legitimized citizen journalism. Can you touch on what research you may have done at YouGov and how today's consumers are thinking about misinformation and citizen journalism and how do they make decisions about what they trust and don't trust? It's interesting on what they trust or don't trust. A lot of the data is showing that for a minority of the population, but a large one, they are having a hard time trusting what is and isn't good sort of journalism or honest journalism or unbiased journalism. Um, you know, you, you look at it the other way, it's about 65% of Americans are pretty confident. They, for instance, example, they can tell the difference between um, real and 
fake news. Mm. Um, but that still means that 35% of Americans don't feel they can tell the difference between right. real and fake news, um, which is a, like a sizable number. And also, by the way, 65% of Americans think they can tell right. the difference. It's probably actually um, lower who can. I would it's probably lower because yeah. people probably, everyone thinks they're cleverer and smarter right. than they are. Um, so that's quite a scary number. And if you look at it in terms of how people's perceptions of the traditional, you know, people have much less trust in the traditional media outlets uh, on both sides of the spectrum, by the way. It's not, it's not a, a necessarily a left or right issue. Uh, you know, the trust that, that CNN and the New York Times on the one hand has is lower. The trust that um, Fox News on the other side of the spectrum has um, is also lower. So people then don't necessarily know where to get information and stories from. And therefore, we are definitely seeing good citizen journalism um, can take off. And because it's often covering stories that I loathe to use the phrase the mainstream media, Mm. uh, but the mainstream media not necessarily covering is providing a valuable service and people are engaging with it. You know, um, there's a case going on right now. You may be familiar with, um, I can never pronounce the surname right now. There's a lawyer called Donziger who sued Chevron and Chevron have now countersued him and applied a private prosecution that sent him to prison in New York. And people are calling for Biden to investigate because it's very, very, or, I don't want to be done for defamation. It appears there might be corruption going on here. Mm. And this is something that citizen journalists are covering extensively. But uh, the sort of traditional newspapers on both the left and the right are almost remaining silent on. So um, those citizen journalists who are covering that particular story um, are getting a huge amount of engagement. And there are a lot of people who are glad that people are writing about that particular story because it's actually important to them. On the activist side of things, whatever type of activist it may be, um, we are seeing that people are increasingly socially conscious about, you know, obviously the environment being one of those things. And we are seeing that people are, citizen journalism is sort of a, uh, satiating the the sort of needs and desires of those activists um mm. yeah is there a relationship between the sort of like decline in trust in institutional journalism but potentially a rise in trust among you know either citizen journalists or independent journalists some of which are very credible and trustworthy and some of which are not people do have a declining trust in the institutions because they're basically seeing them as paid shells um, or they're seeing the conflict of interests. And then, of course, the sort of citizen journalists, um, you know, generally have that much less sort of, you know, a much less beholden to large corporations um, or whatever else it may be. Um, so that's sort of where we're seeing. But but obviously, consumers just have to be extremely careful mm. when they are looking at that to make sure that they're not, you know, reading, they're reading something that's actually truthful as opposed to something that's just designed to get clicks. Um, so it, it's a, it's a, it's a tightrope. Um, but it's, it's definitely an interesting one. And, 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 you know, and citizen journalism is doing a lot of wonderful things. And if, and if you look at it in, you know, the financial markets, I think it's extremely interesting. Now I'm not necessarily talking about like the Reddit stuff going on in terms of, um, uh, you know, right. the, the pump and dump scams, right. but the stock stocks, that's the word I'm looking for. But I'm talking about if you thought, you know, there's there's short sellers who write detailed theses about why certain companies are frauds um, and they do a lot of research into it. So, you know, a classic example, there's a there's a there was a big German company called Wirecard 
um, Wirecard, I mean, they may still exist in some form or other, but Wirecard are a big European payment provider, similar to sort of PayPal. Mm. Um, and they were the big tech success story of Germany. And they had government, German government ministers on their board and all this stuff. And they were worth tens of billions. Um, the, by and large, the mainstream press barely covered them at all um, until right before they went bust and got done as a massive fraud. But there were tens, if not hundreds of citizen journalists who for years um, were, were basically investigating the frauds that the company was perpetrating. Um, the, the also in that particular case, the, uh, they were in bed with the Russian mafia. It's, it's almost as, as you, you couldn't make it up. Um, and all of this stuff was because of individual dogged, um, persistent citizen journalists. Um, and, yeah. and very little of it was covered at all by any of the mainstream press. The Financial Times eventually wrote about it, um, uh, short, oh, but only after, um, government, uh, sorry, the courts in Germany started, um, throwing charges at Wirecard. Um, and that's just one, and, and, and sorry, the reason why in that case is also because Wirecard have such a good PR team or had such a good PR team. They were able to shut down all the dissent that was going on, um, in the press. And so, you know, right. I think there, in there particular- is the, therein comes the lack of trust in institutional journalism. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, they're just to upset a whole load of people you know it'll be interesting to see if tesla um what happens there it, it just just in terms of there are a lot of citizen journalists who are calling out tesla for in particular elon musk for you know potentially fraudulent behavior um and have been for a very long time uh and it will be very interesting to see if if in five or ten years time they are proven correct or if they were not correct um but right now they're the only people who are by and large, um, I mean, Elon Musk is an easy target. So the press are, are are probably throwing more stuff at him than they would other people. But I still think they're probably giving him a pretty, the mainstream press are probably giving him a much easier time um, than he would be getting if he wasn't quite so rich. Um, but anyway, that's just my personal opinion, just to upset all the Tesla. <laughs> There's a lot of them, be careful. Thank you so much to Elliot Higgins for joining us on the Webby Podcast and for the very important work that he and Bellingcat are doing. If you're listening and want to dive into some of their investigations, I encourage you to visit bellingcat.com, B-E-L-L-I-N-G-C-A-T.com. You can also pick up a copy of Elliot's book, We Are Bellingcat, while you're there. We'll include links to both in the show notes. For more information about the Webby Awards, please visit us at webbyawards.com or on most social platforms at The Webby Awards. If you like our podcast, we'd be so grateful if you took a moment to give us a rating or review. You can reach me on social at DMD Likes. Our producer is Kate Mishkin. Our editorial lead is Jordana Jarrett. Our assistant producer is Haley Lewis. Managing director is Rathesh Menon. Claire Graves is our president. Music is Poddington Bear. I am your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is The Webby Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.